0: My dear brethren and sisters and class members, as we will have picked up from our reading this evening, we commence this evening with a consideration of those words of Joab recorded in verse twelve. You'll recall the background of those words from our last class that Joab led the army of Israel, but he was leading them into a very, very difficult situation because two opposing armies, two armies that were the enemies of Israel were coming together and it was necessary that Joab encourage his men that they be ready for this conflict with their faith in Yahweh. And when we read those words in verse 12, they're very, very wonderful words. They're words that would apply in almost any situation where the ecclesia or a body of believers are under threat from enemies In any situation where the truth may appear to be endangered and there are these words be of good courage and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God and Yahweh do that which seemeth him good we commit our cause into the hands of Yahweh but on the other hand we ourselves must be valiant we must be men of the truth we must be men of faith and we must act in that way they're very wonderful words But I think we closed our last class upon the note that although Joab shows up here in probably his best light, yet really it's a little bit misleading because Joab had a sudden seizure of religion, as we might say, in a way that we don't commonly see in the life of Joab. Joab was very much a materialist. He was very much a realist rather than an idealist. And I think I do recall that we have mentioned in previous classes that those two qualities are both very, very important in the truth. We must be realists in the sense that we can identify the situation in which we find ourselves. It's no good being airy-fairy about a dangerous situation or a difficult proposition that we might be facing. So we must be idealistic we must be realistic, rather, in that we, we are able to see and discern with a spiritual vision the reality of any given situation. But as well as that, we must be idealistic in the sense that we know the ideals of the truth. We understand, upon the basis of faith, that the ideal is to put all trust and faith and confidence in Yahweh. You see, one who is really simply a, a realist will tend to sum up any given situation and say, well, this is what I must do. I've got to do this and I'd better do that and I'd better take care of this and that and so on and so forth. And there is an absence of the ideal of placing trust and confidence in Yahweh. And not only that, but in, in our idealism in the truth, we look beyond the present to the future. We look to the point where if this is going to be the end of our life or if this is going to be a situation that we cannot escape from, then ultimately if I am faithful Yahweh will grant a blessing to me even if I have to wait for the kingdom for it to come. So you see there's two qualities there and they're both important but they've got to be ideally balanced. They've got to be carefully balanced. The Lord Jesus Christ was a realist in the sense that he understood what was in men. He could read men and he was realistic about that. He didn't try to avoid issues. He didn't try to run away from problems. But at the same time, we know only too well that his total trust and confidence was in his father because he knew what was at the end of it all for him. That he would be raised from the dead and granted the wonder of divine nature and that he would ascend to his father in heaven. You see, Joab was very much a realist. And he summed matters up from a realistic point of view. And it's not usual for him to behave in this way. This was not a disposition or an attitude that he could ever sustain. He was not consistent. If we could read that 12th verse and say, well, there is Joab. There is the character of Joab. It would be all well and good, but we can't do that. Because we've already in our studies since the first of Samuel chapter 16 seen numerous incidents involving Joab where he even resorted to ruthless cruelty and vengeance in matters that really should have been left in the hands of God. So you see, here is a lesson to be learned from this. We do need to be courageous, we do need to be dedicated but we have to be consistent In our life and the truth and in balancing those qualities. It's for that reason that we find that the Lord Jesus Christ gives the exhortation in Matthew 24 and verse 12 and 13 that is really very relevant to every day and every age for the servants of Yahweh and it's just a great tragedy that Joab could not understand these things more clearly himself. But these words of verse 12 and 13 of Matthew 24 are set down in the context of trial and suffer suffering and persecution and pressure coming upon the saints of God. And against that background the Lord says in verse 12 and because iniquity shall abound. In other words that would be the environment that was the environment in which in many ways David lived and Joab with him. Because iniquity shall be abound, there will be an environment of iniquity, not godliness. Because of that, says the Lord, the love of the many shall wax cold. Not the love of many, but the love of the many. And some versions translate it as the love of the majority. These are Christ's brethren. He's talking about his own brethren. They would not survive the pressure. Why? Why? The next verse tells us, but he that shall patiently endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And there's the key to it. And that is why so many throughout the centuries of time since the days of the Lord and the apostles have fallen away from the truth, under trial, under pressure, under the evil environment in which they have found themselves because they had not patiently endured And you see, there's a very powerful exhortation there, isn't there? He that shall patiently endure unto the end. That is the person who will be saved. Joab, of course, did not come into that category. So, his words are worthy of our consideration in any event. He says, be of good courage, and let us play the men. It's better rendered as Rotherham renders it. Be strong, and let us put forth our strength. Or, it can be also rendered, be strong and let us show ourselves strong. And you see, there's a bit of a contradiction there because in the first part of that verse, which we've just read in that way, be strong and let us show ourselves strong, or, as Rotherham has it, be strong and let us put forth our strength. It's a bit of a contradiction to the last part of the verse where he says, Yahweh, do that which seemeth good to him. See if he'd left it at that, that would have been fine, would it not? If he had said well all our trust and all our confidence is Yahweh, but then on the other hand, first of all he says, let us show the enemy how strong we are. So you see, Job is a little inconsistent here, but at the same time let us learn the lesson as to how he is inconsistent and where he is inconsistent. I'll tell you why we should learn that lesson. Because we brethren and sisters are comrades in arms in the same army in the warfare of faith, and that is really what Israel's army was to be to be under King David. They were to be an army that would go forth in faith that Yahweh would fight their battles. He had not let them down yet. He had not failed them at all, and we really are in an army as Paul tells us in Second Timothy chapter 2, and in other passages where <laughs> military terms are used. But we are really comrades in arms. We're fellow members of the same army, <coughs> and we're engaged in the warfare of faith. And although the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, as were those of Joab, we are nevertheless fighting for the survival of the truth, first of all within ourselves, then within the ecclesia, and wherever we may be placed. So we are dependent upon one another, and we should be united against our common foe. And our common foe, <coughs> our common foe is the flesh and the world. And so under those circumstances, Joab returned and went back to Jerusalem, because the victory was gained. The Ammonites had only one major city of any great consequences. (coughs) That was the city of Rabbah, of which we read in chapter 11 and verse 1. The city of Rabbah was sited on uh, what today is known as Amman. Amman, the capital of Jordan. So in verse 15 we read that when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, they gathered themselves together. Now bear in mind the fact they've already been defeated, (coughs) soundly and roundly defeated. But now we read that when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, they gathered themselves together and had sent and brought out the Syrians that were beyond the river and they came to Helam and Shobach, the captain of the army of Hadareza went before them. It's almost impossible to understand how people could act in this way. The Syrians have already meddled in the affairs between David and the Ammonites, and they've got themselves soundly defeated. Now they were to find themselves involved in a full-scale war against David and the army of Israel and it was a foolish alliance with the Ammonites that was now going to lead the Syrians to absolute total disaster now you see they made, a, they made an alliance with the Ammonites, they said yes we'll come and help you, the Ammonites were defeated the Syrians were defeated and fled so much, so decisive was the victory that Jalad was able to turn around and take all his army back to Jerusalem Thinking that the matter was finished, there was nothing more to be done. So you see, the Syrians were not prepared to accept that. And you see, this foolish alliance that they had made with the Ammonites led them to this further disaster. So you see, we need to be careful, as far as we ourselves are concerned, that we do not make foolish alliances. Especially with the world and become involved in the things of the world. That we do not betray the principles of the truth. We think of men that we've come across in our studies in this subject men like Ahithophel, Shimei, Joab. Every one of them either made or is in the future, from our time of our studies, to make a foolish alliance that would lead to their own loss of life. So here is had a reason. And he is coming back for more of what he has already had at the hands of the army of Israel. And with the ignominious defeat of the Syrian mercenaries that had been there before, and this man, Hadariza, was one of the most powerful monarchs in an area known as Aram, a very widespread area up to the north here of Israel and the, and the east. So this man probably felt that he's got to do something to save face. So he says, well, if that's what David wants, what I will do is get together a bigger army and a better army. And he t- takes, you'll notice, he takes them from both sides of the, of the Euphrates and uh, he assembles this great army and he's going to now promote a national war against Israel. This is not just a matter of sending out an army. You read verse 15 carefully in verse 16, you'll see that this was some considerable army. So much so that David himself, as we find in verse 17, takes personal charge of the army at this stage. So this man, Shobak, is given the charge. He was no doubt a very good warrior. And it says in verse 16 that they came to Helan. Now that's identified as an area of 26 miles east of the Sea of Galilee. And that may well be so, but we feel we should mention that the word can be translated out as full force. And so, therefore, some versions uh, render this and they came in full force. Actually, a place known as Helam has never ever been found. If it was anywhere, the Bible atlas is identified, as we've said, in an area of 26 miles east of the Sea of Galilee. That means they had come down quite a way. And that here shows where the Syrian Empire was with the uh, point on number 6 up here, with the point on number 6. And they had come down, all that area down, toward an area just to the east. In other words, they had come back again into the area of Amman. So in verse 17, it tells us that when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and passed over Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in array against David and fought with him. Now, I believe that we should note from verse 17 that there's no indication here that David has lost any confidence in Joab as the captain of his army. Nothing to suggest that at all. But rather, are we to see, I believe, that the war had become such a serious one, and remember now, this is David's sixth military campaign. This is the sixth one against the Syrians. That it was not just simply a matter of nation against nation, but in effect it was a showdown between the God of the Syrians and the God of Israel. And David understood that. He saw fit to take personal charge at the head of the army. And his personal presence would have done much to add to the greater zeal and dedication and courage of the army as they saw their own king out there. If only he'd gone out with the army in chapter 11 and verse 1 when the fifth, when the final seventh military campaign took place we would probably not have had the disaster that follows in chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba but he didn't do it then when he should have so verse 18 gives us an idea of the army that was assembled there the Syrians fled before Israel and David slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians can you just imagine what a field of battle would look like with 100 chariots spread abroad. Can you have any idea, can we get any comprehension of what it would be like to face an army, just the mounted cavalry for a start, of 700 chariots? We we can't even imagine 700 military tanks in a modern war. It's an incredible thing. And then, of course, we read of 40,000 horsemen but you'll notice the little number two there and the margin renders footmen, and that is correct. the margin is correct. You'll notice it also gives you there, first of chronicles 19 and verse 18, which supports this same rendering forty thousand footmen. and he smote Shobach, the captain of the army who died there. So you see this was a, an, an astonishing victory, so that when we come to verse 19, We read that when all the kings that were servants to Hadareza saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon any more. Now this is a remarkable verse. As we come to the end of this 10th chapter, you see, in one respect, David had set out with the best of godly motives to show kindness to others, particularly we have in mind the Ammonites. And yet, because they rejected him and humiliated him, and therefore by implication, the God whom he worshipped, out of that incident, David finished up extending his power and ensuring greater peace for his own people. The hand of providence is never far away from those who walk in the ways of Yahweh. It's it's quite remarkable what happened here. He extended his power beyond what can really be imagined in many respects. But you see, because David trusted in Yahweh and when he went out to war, his trust was not in the arm of flesh but in the, the hand of providence, the God whom Israel worshipped. And Yahweh is never far away from those who walk in his ways and who trust in him. You know, a very beautiful uh, comment in that regard is given us by David himself in Psalm 37, which, as we're all aware, is a very wonderful psalm. Psalm 37 and verse 23 and 24 give to us David's own experience in these matters. He says in verse 23, the steps of a man are ordered by Yahweh. You'll notice the word good there is in italics. He's not talking about a good man. He's talking about a man who trusts in Yahweh. The steps of a man are ordered, or as the margin renders it, established by Yahweh. And he delighteth in his ways. In other words, here is a man who knows what it means to walk in the way of the truth, to be aware of the overriding presence of Yahweh, the hand of providence in his life. Now notice how this is demonstrated in the next verse. In verse 24, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for Yahweh upholdeth him with his hand. Now just think about what that verse is saying. Though he fall. And time after time we all fall, don't we? As David is about to fall with a great big crash. But we ourselves fall time after time because of the weakness of the flesh. And because somehow or other in certain situations we just lack the strength to handle it in the way in which we should. But you see, the verse is saying, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Now let me give you an illustration of what that verse means in the sense of applying it. Let us imagine that there are two of us walking together down a street on the footpath. And we're walking very closely together because we're animatedly talking to each other about the things of the truth. We're having a discussion. We're side by side and one of us fails to see a rock lying in the footpath or maybe a gap and stumbles to fall as though to fall and would go down. But because the other one is so close, they can reach out and take them by the arm and steady them and make sure that they stand on their feet and do not fully fall, as that verse says. Do you see what it really is getting at? It's getting at the fact that a, a person, a man or a woman, whose faith and trust and confidence is in Yahweh, learns to live in a way that they are very close to Yahweh. They are aware of God's presence being very near. Not far, far away as though, well, he can't see me and he doesn't know what I'm doing. And therefore, who's going to help me in my hour of need? It's a, there are two beautiful verses in that psalm. Verse 23 and verse 24. If only we can learn to live close to God in the sense of being aware of his presence through the angels. No doubt we've all had experiences in our life where that has happened to us. Where we've been going to fall or fail. And yet there has been divine help there somehow that has rescued us from situations. Now you see, this is David. And those words in that psalm are are written by David. His own experiences. So, when we look at the last verse there, of this tenth chapter, there is really a very incredible uh, outcome from this whole thing, because you'll notice that there were other kings in that area that we mentioned, the area of Aram, in that whole area who were paying tribute to this Hadariza who was such a fabulous king and so strong and so powerful. But when they see that he is destroyed by his army and his power is gone, these other kings who had been paying tribute to him now become tributary to Israel. So that as we look at the end of this chapter, What we should see, I believe, is that there has been victory after victory. Very often in the most difficult circumstances. We want to just mention in a moment what a remarkable chapter that is. Chapter 8 and chapter 10. The seventh and final military campaign, which as we've said, answers, we believe, to the seven thunders of the apocalypse, and typify the Lord Jesus Christ in his establishment of the kingdom. The final victory came in chapter 11, verse 1 with the ultimate and complete defeat of the Ammonites. But when we think of this army that David had here, it is one of the most incredible armies in history, one of the most astonishing, remarkable armies that have ever been seen. Because in every one of these military campaigns, the army has been well-ordered, it has been disciplined, it has been courageous, it has been equipped by men who are totally dedicated to the cause of their king and of their God. Now you see, an army will operate effectively and will have victory after victory after victory if it has sound leaders, if it has men at their forefront with ability and with purpose and with the courage and the determination And you know, Israel today works on that basis. The Israeli army works on that basis. Most of you have probably uh, heard about the fact that in most armies in the world, the officers, the men in charge of a battalion or a troop or a company or whatever it might be, they more or less stand back and give the orders and tell the troops where to go and when to charge. But they have told us in Israel that in their army the captains and the lieutenants and the majors, and men who cost them ten times more in money to train and develop than it does an ordinary soldier, those men go out in front and leave the army. And one Israeli official told me personally that they reckon that although they lose more officers in combat than any other army in the world has ever lost. They believe it to be worth it because the men have such confidence in the men who are leading them that they'll follow them anyway. And that has happened in the various wars that Israel has fought. Now you know, when you consider that the Lord Jesus Christ is our head and the fact that we are soldiers in the warfare of faith, Our weapons are not carnal, they are spiritual. And so therefore we are part of the spiritual army of Yahweh. And so therefore we have to learn some of these powerful lessons from David. And he's very brave, courageous and dedicated men. The well disciplined, totally dedicated army. And every man in that army would have had his own job to do. Everyone would have had a, a, an attitude that they would serve and that they would fulfil their duty with their whole heart. And so every man had to honour his responsibility in that army if the army was to succeed. And so, of course, it really should be in an ecclesia, shouldn't it? That we all have duties to the truth. We have duties to our Lord and King. We have duties to our God. We have duties to one another. And the Ecclesia should be welded together like that, as one, like a well-disciplined army, like we see David here with this remarkable group of men who operated under his command. If the Ecclesia can be like that, then the Ecclesia will be solidified. The Ecclesia should be of one mind in their service to God. We should accept our responsibilities, whatever they are, we should do our duty in the way in which a soldier would. But of course, in the spiritual sense. So, in all these things, we know there is a type of that which will come when the Lord returns. And we're making this point because the army that Christ leads against the nations of the world will be after the type of the army that we see David leading here. Except that it will be immortal. It will be a A perfect army. Because every individual in that army will be a a divine manifestation of what Yahweh is. And we know from such passages as Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? And why do they take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed? And so forth throughout Psalm 2. Psalm 149. This honour have all his saints, that they will subdue the kings of the earth. So it will be necessary in many cases in the kingdom age to subdue flesh and sin as it produces it by force so that we have Christ's coming military campaigns against the nations that's why we suggest that chapter 8 and chapter 10 are remarkable chapters because it is these are not merely chapters relating matter of factly a few Wars in which David had become involved. It is far more significant than that. You see, in these these seven military campaigns, we have the nation of Israel looking back to what it was under Saul where they couldn't fight anybody. They could not even muster an army that would stick together and stand together. Remember even back to the time when, uh, when Goliath was there, going back to the First of Samuel chapter 17, and from then right on until a disastrous end of the army virtually, in the final chapter, chapter 31, when the Philistines poured down across the valley of Jezreel, up Mount Gilboa and destroyed Saul and Jonathan and his sons and, and destroyed the, the army of Israel. Were they well disciplined? Of course they weren't. Were they dedicated and courageous? Of course they weren't because they hadn't been taught those things. They had no sound leader at their head. Their leader was Saul. What sort of a man was Saul? So you see, picture Israel as being a a cringing nation in effect in the days of Saul, dominated by the Philistines and anyone who decided to have a go at them in any way, whatever. They have come from this downtrodden state of being so lowly that they were contemptible in the eyes of other nations to the point where now they are a formidable power, a great expanded empire, a nation. So these chapters are really recounting an incredible national transformation under the leadership of David whose faith and confidence was in Yahweh. You see, there is the type of the kingdom age and that is what it's going to be like, exactly like that, only of course far more so. Now with those thoughts in mind, let us turn our attention to chapter 11. But as we do so, and we know that what we are going to be dealing with here is David's fall from grace, if we might call it that, in his sin with Bathsheba, which, incidentally, we will endeavour to deal with in, uh, in a proper and a dignified way, without uh, without trying to um, uh, over dramatise the the incident itself. David himself later on was very pleased to accept his responsibility in regard to this by writing psalms such as Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and gave them to the chief musician and said, these are to be played in the, in the temple when it's built. These are to be sung in the temple. The example of my own folly, I want to make public before all Israel so that they might learn from my mistakes what a wonderful man he was. But as we, as we open this 11th chapter now, we would like to just briefly draw a parallel between what happens here and the times in which we are now living. We are living in a hedonistic, humanistic society where basically the main ideal of almost every individual upon the face of the earth and nowhere more so than in the prosperous western countries is the seeking of pleasure and self-gratification. When we come to study this chapter, David's circumstances here, I want us to be able to equate not just simply this as a historical incident of failure, but equate ourselves with this situation. We're living in a society that is obsessed with these things. Hedonism, humanism, pleasure, self-gratification. And you know, when the Lord Jesus Christ was describing the state of the world when he would come, we all know only too well that he said, as it was in the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Lot. And it seems to me whenever I've read those words or they've come to my mind, that the Lord cast his mind back through history and brought to mind what to him were the two most evil periods in human history, particularly in relation to the people of God. And he had the days of Lot and the days of Noah in his mind. In the days of Noah, it was noted for almost a total lack of spirituality. The days of Lot were noted for a lack of morality. The days of Noah were an unspiritual society. And you see, brethren and sisters, how those two things, although they represent two different epochs, they come together in the age that is going to herald the Lord's return. In the days of Noah, a lack of spirituality. In the days of Lot, a lack of morality. An immoral society. The Lord says, as it was in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. So we see about us everywhere a lack of spirituality. Hardly anybody is interested in religion or spiritual things anymore or the the values that any kind of religion will place upon a person and there is a total lack of restraint in moral things in society. You see, the world today accepts things like adultery and fornication together with many other immoral practices as a way of life. In fact, when was the last time you ever read in the newspapers or heard on a news bulletin or or for that matter heard anyone in your work environment or anything else at all talk about the subjects of adultery or fornication? Nobody even talks about those things anymore because they're no longer even recognised. They don't matter. They are an accepted way of life. And because of that, the world is paying a fearful price. Let's be sure we understand that. Sometimes we might think, well, we're not of the world. But because people in the world do what they like, they don't have any spiritual values, they don't have any moral values, they must at least have a good time. They don't have a good time. They don't have a good time. time. We, have a, we live in a world of more broken marriages, broken homes, little children cast aside. No really genuine relationships between men and women who cast each other off when they get sick of each other. There is an incredible increase in the last 20 years in suicide because people just opt out of life. They just can't face it anymore. The rates of suicide in many parts of the world have never been higher in known history than they are now. People just can't, they can't handle it. They can't live with it. So there is increasing suicide. There is violence in every form that you can imagine. Vice. And all of that brings an element of misery. Absolute misery to the world that they can't understand. And all of this is because men and women, whether they're old or young, think that they can live in defiance of the wise principles that God has established for human relationships. Isn't that true? And I want us to bear these things in mind. You might think, well, what has that got to do with chapter 11? It's got everything to do with chapter 11 for the times in which we are living. It's got everything to do with it. And when you think of it, For what David did in this 11th chapter, do you really think it made him happy? Do you think that it brought him advantages? Do you think that he was better off afterwards? You see, we have to consider these things because Yahweh has set down specific commandments in relation to the standards of moral conduct that he expects from the creatures that he has created. And the world has ignored them or repudiated them or simply sneered at them. Others simply forget about them because they don't hear about them anymore. You know, when you think of values as far as the world is concerned, God has condemned murder, but he has also condemned with equal disapproval things like adultery and fornication. Now how many people commit murders in cases, in countries where there is a justice system? In a lot of countries in the world today, a person who is found guilty of murder is just simply hung or put before a firing squad. Even in the Western world, with a failure of the justice system virtually, they will go to jail for some considerable time. So therefore, people really think twice, don't they, about committing murder. They really do, because they know they'll get locked up. If they do that. But what about things like adultery and fornication? Well, to get involved in a way of life like that, nothing happens. No one worries. Those crimes are no longer punishable. They no longer even carry a social stigma, such as they did when when many of us were much, much younger. No one really cares about these things anymore. You know, brethren and sisters, I want to emphasise this tonight so that we will get this firmly fixed in our mind in relation to the times in which David lived. Because in the times in which David lived, the punishment for what he did was to be stoned to death. And even even for other crimes, of moral crimes, there was great uh, punishment for things that were done that were very, very wrong in the eyes of Yahweh. If we remind ourselves of the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, here is the fatal philosophy of the world. I guess it's always been the fatal philosophy of the world, but never more so than today. In Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11, a verse that we know only too well, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And that's the world. That's the world today. I mean, those words are directed there for us. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, that Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11 has to do with the world. I'm speaking about the fact that it defines the fleshly human reaction to a given situation where there is no punishment it is easy for flesh to regard it as there being no crime. And today no one worries about those sort of things and we have got to worry about them because they are related to what we are. We are a separated people and we've got to remain such. We are the Israel of God living among the latter day Canaanites who are all around us. We live in a world of Canaanites. And look what happened to Israel in the midst of the Canaanites in Psalm 106 and uh, verse 34, 35 and 36. These are words that we know quite well. What did Israel do here? They did not destroy the nations concerning whom Yahweh commanded them, but were mingled among the nations and learned their works and they served their idols which were a snare unto them. So you see, these things are really basically very, very important. And I want to be sure that we all think about this. And we we can't afford to allow ourselves to get swept away in the world in which we live today. You know, whatever happens, we've got to help one another to stand firm against the influence of the Canaanites that will come into the very ecclesia itself. You probably know as well as I do that there are uh, many ecclesial situations in different parts of the world where there is very, very strong worldly influence. Oh, I've been to some of these ecclesias and seen the, the, the outcome of, of a, a, a weakened attitude towards standards in the truth, standards of morality, standards of spirituality, standards of, of, of the study of the Word of God itself standards of dress, whatever it might be, the the gradual wearing away through the pressure of the world upon the Ecclesia of God. So David had to learn these things, brethren and sisters, not that he didn't know them before, but they had to come home to him very strongly because of his own bitter personal experience. We don't have to suffer the experience because by the grace of God, we can learn from what is revealed in the Word itself. And you know, as we look at this chapter and consider what we're going to find here, we want to consider another aspect of it as well. Do you know, I've actually heard on more than one occasion, I've heard a brother say, Well, David committed adultery, but of course he got away with it. Did he? You know, that is just purely serpent reasoning. Anyone who would say that has not read the scriptures properly. We cannot openly flout the moral principles of the truth and be blameless. Where is it ever taught in the word that David committed this gross crime and that he got away with it? We just cited circumstances in the world. And we've raised the point that though nobody cares about moral values anymore, and everyone does what they like and lives with who they want to, and divorces and remarries at leisure as many times as you care to think because nobody cares about it anymore, that the world is in a dreadful state. There is not happiness in the world, there is not contentment. People might think they've got the freedom to do what they like, but where does it get them? And you know, it was the same with David. Because to use the expression that he got away with it is to confuse it with the fact that God forgave him because he was a man after God's own heart with all his weaknesses. David, we know only too well as we've discovered time and again, was a godly man. He loved God. He loved his word. We see here David at a time of weakness. And let us remember we are all weak We are all weak. We all have the same weakness that David displayed in certain respects at different times of his life because we're made of the same material. We're made of the same thing. And rather than David getting away with it, as we have heard the expression used, let us remember this, brethren and sisters, he did not get away with it because after this frightful train of events Life for David and for his family was never, ever the same again. Never the same again. Strife and trouble dogged David and his family until the time of his death, until he went to his grave. Let's remember that. We know only too well. In chapter 12, verse 10, let's just look at it for a moment. We know the verse quite well. Nathan comes to David and although David finds forgiveness by the grace of Yahweh, Nathan says to him, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. You see, when David did what he did, he didn't realise that what he was doing was despising Yahweh. Because he was totally rejecting in his own mind, without realising or thinking what he was doing. The flesh just took control of him. But Yahweh says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house. And it never did. It never did. Even after Solomon assumed the throne, there was still bloodshed in that family. So you see, these things are really very, very important. They're very, very important. And again, I think that some have reasoned over the years that because David found that he could act in this way and find forgiveness of God, that basically almost anyone can do the same thing because there is always forgiveness. Would any of us be so foolish as to think that way about moral issues like this? Well, David did it and David got forgiveness. So, wouldn't it apply to me too? Let's see what the scripture says about it. Keeping our hand in Second of Samuel chapter 11 and go over to Romans chapter 6. And these are verses that we know quite well, but let's have a look at them. Because they're very, very relevant to what we're dealing with. Romans chapter 6. In verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You might think to yourself, why ever would Paul ask a question like that and put it in writing in an epistle? Why would he do that? Do you know why he did it? Because there were those who taught in opposition to the Apostles that since we are saved by grace, that is the grace of God, the more we sin, the greater will be the abundance of grace bestowed upon us. What incredible illogic and lack of understanding. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let it not be. You can imagine it almost crying that in anguish. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We know the words well enough, don't we? But let's turn the page to verse 15. Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. Wait a minute, I'm in the wrong passage. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 15. What then, he says well we really ought to read verse 14 I suppose for sin shall not have dominion over you for ye are not under the law but under grace but if we are under grace let us not abuse a privilege that is not ours by that I mean that Paul is arguing going to argue here because we are under grace don't assume that you can do what you like as he said in verse 1 and still receive the grace of God. So in verse 15, what then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, let it not be. So you see, let us not assume anything in regard to these matters. And David himself provides us with a key as far as forgiveness is concerned. In Psalm 32, the psalm that he wrote in relation to his sin, When for nine months, as we shall see, for nine months, David did not confess this sin. For nine months, he kept that bottle up inside him. He tried to hide it, but it nearly destroyed him. You see, in verse 2, Blessed is the man under whom Yahweh imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence... My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. And he lived like that. Was he happy with what he had done? He was the most miserable, fearful creature you could imagine during that time. But look, the key is in verse 6. For this Shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found? Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Notice the emphasis there. For this shall every one that is godly. In other words, a person of integrity in the eyes of of Yahweh, in the eyes of the Father. One who really, from the depths of their being, loves God and loves his word and loves his truth. And until we go to the judgment seat, brethren and sisters, we won't really know whether we qualify in that regard in the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ or not. So shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let it not be. And those are the primary lessons that we're going to have to learn and others, many of them as we go along through this chapter as we come to chapter 11. So the chapter begins with the words that after the year has expired when the kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David carried still at Jerusalem, where he should not have been, and God willing we shall see more of that at our next class.